Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. In this podcast, we have conversations with artists, collectors, curators, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and influenced LDS culture. This week, we have a conversation with the painter Justin Wheatley. Now, Justin, when we started off the Zion Art Society, was one of the first artists we featured in exhibitions and in salons that we held in various uh, locations around the country. And at that time, he had won a top award for his work at the church's international show, which is three years ago, the last one. Since then, he has been featured in many exhibitions in and out of the church, and maybe most prominently at BYU Museum of Art's uh, recent exhibition of contemporary LDS works, where his was the uh, marquee work chosen for for uh, promoting the event. Uh, as we sit down with Justin, we talk not only about his work uh, as an artist, but his his uh, work as a teacher. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Well, I'm very excited to have Justin Wheatley here. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. And we go back a long ways, don't we? Yeah, we do. Right here, I'm drinking Yerba Mate, which you know. <laughs> you were just commenting on it. <laughs> Um, should I say how we how we know each other? Yeah, we uh, we served our missions together in Santiago, Chile, and uh, it's funny because I don't think we ever had a conversation about art, and it wasn't until years later no. that we ran into one another, and I just found out that my Wachito Rico here, <laughs> Justin <laughs> Justin Wheatley, and I have a lot in common, but that's not where I want to start off. This is this is this is really where I've got a uh, a, a question for you which is I'm fascinated with an event that you have on a regular basis. Tonight in Salt Lake City is Gallery Stroll. It happens every third Friday, and it's been going on for, I don't know, I don't know how long it's been going on. It's been going on for years. But you, in a, on the evenings of Gallery Stroll, have a gathering at your house of artists who critique each other's work. Is there an official name for that gathering? Uh, critique. <laughs> this is just it critique. Critique? Yeah. What are the art historians going to call it in retrospect? You got to come up with some like some name. And and I'm not joking about that because in all seriousness, this is a kind of who's who of people who are creating very serious art today. And how many years have you been doing this? 12 years. So walk so, me through what this evening is like. Okay. Um, on a typical a typical evening of critique on a gallery stroll night. Yeah, everybody shows up and eventually we have a potluck usually. My wife makes pizza. We used to get pizza until she figured out how to make some really good pizza. Yeah. Um, she figured out. You didn't do it. You, oh, you no, made her do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we usually sit down and talk for a half hour, 45 minutes, and then it's like, all right, who wants to go first? And whoever brought artwork sets it out, and we just start to talk about it. And everyone who comes brings a work of art that they are currently working on. Yeah. And then they 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 put it before this group of peers. And and some of the and when I went to this, and Eric and I, Eric Biggert, who's here sound engineering this, producing it, um, he he and I went and I was surprised at how simultaneously can um, um, positive and candidly critical people were of pieces. And, and that's the kind of thing that can only happen when you have a high level of trust. Right. I would imagine. Yeah. And you know, the core of the group, I should, it was started by Steven Stradley and Naaman Bills and I right out of college, we went to Utah state together and we ended up here in Salt Lake and, um, Steven's in St. George now, but Naaman still will come and, and, there's a few people that have been part of the group for the whole 12 years, and that's really, that's what keeps it going. And, and you know, we'll have new people come and go, and but there's always that, that friendship and trust, and that we can be honest with, with each other, which is so important. And, and this is the advice I give to anybody that, that really asks, like, how do you keep going? How do you make work? First thing I say is you need to get together with a group of friends and talk about your art gives you a reason to make something for the next month. You know, the thing that, that surprises me about it is I imagine that when you're talking about other artists, 
and this is this is the small-minded version of, of of thinking about it. It's the idea that, oh no, I'm not going to show them what I'm working on. They're my competitors, right? Or they don't, um, or or uh, no one can tell me whether this is good or bad, but myself, right? Those kinds of concerns. But are those are those things that people have said to you when you've told them about this group or asked them to come? Has anybody ever had a negative experience where they've walked away and said, you know what? You guys are dumb. I'm out of here. <laughs> no, I, I hope that happens at some point. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> it hasn't happened. We've, you know, there are times when there's apologies at the end, like, oh, I'm sorry I said that or... But everybody usually says, oh, no, 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 that's that was good. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you pointed this out. And, you know, just like anything, people walk away and they either listen to the advice or they ignore it. I, 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 this is the last comment and so on this before we move on to more about you personally and, and, uh, and your work. It's, uh, it's this idea that I, I had a conversation with Walter Rain, an interview with him, um, figurative artist. He lives in New York. You're going to, you're going to be seeing him soon. Right. We had talked about or you'd, you'd been in contact with him right. recently. Yeah. And um, and he said that one of the reasons he deliberately moved to New York is so that he wasn't influenced by artists in the LDS community uh-huh. in this area. I don't think that's the only reason, but it was it was a big influence on him. And the only people who are allowed to see his works are him and his wife huh. before they're done. And sometimes it'll take four or five years to finish a piece because he'll just put it in a closet for a few years and pull it back out and he's not interested in other people's advice. And it just strikes me that that both options are okay, right? Yeah. Like it's 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 this idea that if that works for you, well, no one's gonna tell Walter that doesn't work for him. <laughs> it certainly works for him. Right? <laughs> and if this were but but I love the idea that I think in the history of great art being made. There's always this kind of hidden network. This is what art historians like me love. They love to find out, okay, who's hanging out on a regular basis? And can we create a timeline of when so-and-so made this or so-and-so made that? Oh, yes, they were made the same month and they were talking about the same book. It just, to me, I I hope somebody's recording stuff occasionally. We need a historian. Yeah, maybe you need a historian part of that group. (laughs) I'd be happy to come for the pizza. All right. You're invited. (laughs) Well... Let's you know, one of the one of the images when we were talking about doing this, we left it pretty loose. This interview, um, maybe looser than we left most. And I just said, give me some images that you'd like to talk about before we we uh, we get together. And um, one of the images you brought out is a painting by Greg Olson. Yeah, tell us which image you chose. It's called "In His Constant Care." And in his constant care. So if you had to describe it for people, we'll put it up on the designartsociety.org website. People can see it there. Familiar image to anyone who grew up in the church in the 90s. Yeah. So it's an image of Christ standing in a courtyard, and he's just reaching out to this little branch that has a few birds on it. So it's just this solitary center figure. Um, he's dressed in white. Um, and it's very peaceful. It's a, it's, it's a serene painting. So for those who are familiar with your work, which is heavily influenced by architecture and by a very different color palette, I would imagine, than this kind of work, which is predominantly figurative. I mean, mm-hmm. you have some figurative work you do occasionally, but um, not in the same approach at all that, that Greg Olson has. I don't think anyone would have put <laughs> you and Greg Olson... You choosing Greg Olson is an image that you would want to have a conversation about. Yeah. What is it about this image that that you said that, that this had influenced you? So when I was a teenager and kind of deciding on what I wanted to do and wanting to be, I, I teach art as well, and I've always wanted to be an art teacher. Um, but wanting to we'll be get an to that. We're going to talk more about you being an art teacher. Um, Greg Olson was one of those artists I knew. Um, my parents are not artistic. They do. They support. They always supported my artistic endeavors, but um, we weren't really art literate. Like we would go to museums. I remember seeing M.C. Escher at the State Fair Park and Norman Rockwell at the Springville Museum. But did you? Where did you grow up? In Clinton. In Clinton. By, Where's Clinton? It's by close to Ogden, Layton. Okay. It's Davis County. Um, 
So this was one of the artists that I, I would look at and just, I really admired. And then when I was in the MTC, this painting, I believe it was the original. It's, it, it, at least it was in the entrance and I would sneak away alone and go and, and just sit in front of the painting and look if at it. If you're alone in the MTC, <laughs> are you really uh, no. like not with the companion? I mean, you're surrounded by thousands of... <laughs> right. <laughs> alone by the rules, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I kind of had this relationship. I don't know if I would go there if I was having a hard time or what, but it was kind of this little place, even though I wasn't alone. Like you said, there were people around. It was, if I needed to have a moment, I would go and and sit there and look at the painting. And um, so it's always been kind of special to me. Had you created much work before then? You know, I went on my mission right out of high school. So it was just, just, I was stuck in that super realistic prismacolor. I want to be like Greg Olson and, and draw and paint pictures of Christ. So were you, tr you were trying to do religious art and you were trying to do figurative art mm -hmm. from a very young age. Yeah. How young were you? Did you know that? Because because you, you said you didn't. Your family wasn't artistic in uh -huh. a, in a clearly uh, career wise way. Yeah. Was was there a, a particular moment that you said, "Yeah, this this could be it." That 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 typical Vasari moment. The 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 Vasari tells the story in the lives of the artists that he he attributes the same thing to ten or fifteen different artists of a piece of charcoal falls out of the fireplace uh -huh. and he draws the portraits of everybody in the family. And that's the moment we knew he was only three years old. Yeah. <laughs> that's the moment we knew he was going to be an artist. Was there a charcoal moment for you? No, no. I just always, always wanted to do it. And I've been pretty fortunate that it's yeah. happened. I was really, I was really thrilled actually when you saw it, because I haven't really looked at this image in a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think it'd be fair to say that I grew up in Bountiful, not far away from you. Um, it's probably fair to say that there was a time in the 90s when Greg Olson was everywhere mm -hmm. um, in church magazines and and in, uh, in in church buildings and church in, in stores that were commercial that were owned by the church or not owned by the church. It was just ubiquitous. And and I think that was its own enemy in a way uh -huh. because then, it became so common, almost like Van Gogh was when I right. for, for a certain number of people that if everyone had a Van Gogh in their dorm room, um, you'd be like, uh, yeah, Van Gogh. But then you see your first Van Gogh in real life, uh -huh. and and all of a sudden, boom! To come back and see this image of Greg Olson after years of not coming to it, it is a brilliant work of art, just on the abstract level, uh -huh. from my opinion. The abstract level of choices you're making about color and shape, lights and darks, where your eye moves around it. There are a lot of brilliant choices. I agree. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, you know, and I don't feel that way about all of Greg Olson's work. No. But this is something that, um, I don't know if it's just the nostalgia, but, you know, the way you're talking about it, I'm starting to see some things that, yeah. That um, yeah, that are sticking out in that way. But for you on that uh, on that level, it was more of just you had this emotional connection to the point yeah. that you thought I want to do that. Yeah, because I mean, like you said, he was all over, and that to me was art. As far as you know, I'm I always had a strong testimony, and I wanted that to be reflected in my work. So it was either Greg Olson or any other number of artists you see in church magazines yeah. or wherever, and I, I was drawn to him. So you go on your mission. And did you work on any art where you were, were there? Not that you have time, really. Yeah, I was trying to think about that. I have two or three watercolors that you, I had in a sketchbook. And I remember I drew out the plan of salvation and it, so I could use it in the discussions. Oh, my heavens. Do you still have that somewhere? No, but for some reason in my mind, I have this this idea that it was somehow perpetuated and that they're still using it right now. But somebody picked it up. <laughs> you, you, know, you know what? That's true, though. That There's this... There's this rule, I can't remember what, it, what it's called, but it's, it's child psychologists use it, that children teach other children lessons. So there's, there's a cycle of perpetually of people learning hopscotch and jump rope and oh. different rhymes and games that are frozen in a certain number of grades. And an adult never teaches it to a child. Children just pass it on to children. 
missions are exactly like that. There are technicas that we right. that we learned techniques <laughs> that were all that none of them were in manuals. They were all perpetuated by just like that 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 cyclical right. relationship. I wouldn't be surprised at all if anybody who's listening to the podcast has a, an original Justin Wheatley <laughs> or a reproduction Justin Wheatley plan of salvation planned. Let let us know. <laughs> but you came back, and did you? There's there's always that idea as missionaries. I think the three most common things when you ask people what they're going to be is dentist, doctor, or I'm going to get my MBA or something uh-huh. like that. Did you did you know when you came back, art's it? Um, there might have been a little bit of time where I was iffy because I was the financial secretary for a time on the mission, and I thought about accounting. And mm. <laughs> thank goodness that didn't go very far. <laughs> <laughs> so did you go immediately into a program after school? Did, did you formally... Where did I you go? Did. I went to Utah State, and it was a dual major, education, art education and fine art. So why Utah State? Great place. Why, right. why there? Um, so before my mission, when I was checking into schools in Utah, Utah State, as far as I could tell, had the best art program. It was, hmm. it was illustration was their forte. And um, I went on my mission and came back, and all of these professors had retired um, the ones that you had looked right, at before you the, left? The backbone of that program. Hmm. and But Chris Terry was still there, and he was the main professor and Jane Catlin, and, and I, I'm glad I went. It was a great place to go. What what do you think that program gave you that that you still look back on and you think, yeah, that that was that was a key understanding that I got from that? Um, that's a good question that I've thought a lot about is I – hear and talk to people about the different schools that they have gone to and I think more than anything it just opened my eyes to to not painting specific religious work I can remember being really excited and and talking to a professor and saying Craig Olson went here right and he just gave me that look like oh no another one <laughs> why do you think that was his th- why do you, why do you think that was his take uh probably just another lds kid fresh off the mission wanting to make religious art hmm. so um chris was always very good at just kind of prodding you along at what you wanted to do and it took me a long time to figure out what i wanted to do and it's always had a religious there's some underlying religious themes at least for me, it's. I don't think it's very obvious for for other people. At least. Yeah, I, I think with my experience, and we'll talk about um, some of the a, a couple of, of your works that mm-hmm. may not be overtly religious um, until you have a conversation about them. Mm-hmm. But that was even true then. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Always has been. Um, and I, th- I look at the work that I was producing, the work that I had in our final BFA show, and it's. It's out there. It's nothing like way? I do today. Well, it was a lot of like color field stuff and just, I think I was trying to figure out different palettes and, and just have applications of the paint. You know, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you're going to be an LDS, um, okay, I, I think that there are three, this, this is this is a Micah theory that may be totally off, but this is Micah's current, one of his pet theories that there are three places where traditional art is still dominant. It's Western art, portraiture, and religious art. Uh-huh. That no matter how successful modernism is and, and, and more contemporary experimental works, those three areas will always be, depending on how you think of it, stubbornly traditional because of the nature of what they are. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be, re- if you're interested in Greg Olson, you come home from your mission, you want to do religious art, and you make a choice to do something that's more abstract, there's a conscious decision right now to buck a trend, uh-huh. in my opinion. Yeah. Right? When did that happen? At what point did you say, you know what? I don't want to do a biblical looking scene, but I want to keep the thematic inspiration. Yeah, um, I'd probably say I studied abroad in Germany. It was a five week program, and we went over there. And who's we? Oh, there's probably about 20 students from Utah State. And where in Germany? In Essen. 
which is kind of the heart of, it's in the Ruhrgebiet, it's the industrial part of the country, so it's not Bavaria by any means, but I still found it to be really beautiful. Um, we went to a museum there, and I saw a painting by a guy named Lionel Feininger that just blew my mind, and this was, it was a similar experience to going and sitting by the Greg Olson painting, you know? I, mm. It was, I stopped and I, I paused and I sat there and just looked at it. And it's of a cathedral, but the cathedral, the planes continue into the space above it. And it was like, I can do, I can have those religious themes in a painting and not paint, of, not paint Christ. I can do architecture. I can express this relationship between we as people and the nature we exist in and mm. God as a creator and how we, we take what he's given us and create new things. Hmm. Is it fair to say that there isn't anything like that that you could, could have seen at that time in the LDS art um, uh, space? I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just searching my mind and I'm, I'm, thinking about how um, much of the art that I grew up with, that you, and you probably grew up with since we didn't grow too far apart, was very illustrative. But the idea that you could do something that like Feiniger, who is, am I saying that right? I've looked it up now twice. <laughs> That's how I've been saying it for years. Because I've so seen his so. work many times. I mean, he was a famous um, artist who worked you know, until about the, the, the mid-1950s, right? Mm -hmm. And he... Uh, he was born in New York, but ended up in Germany and had German German roots. Yeah. But um, he's he's not quite cubism, I wouldn't call it. He's clearly influenced by the kind of choice to fracture space. Yeah. In the way that he does, but it's not it's not cubism, uh -huh. really. It's it's interesting to try to pinpoint it because he was no. part of the Bauhaus. He was one of the original faculty and. Um, I've read that he was an expressionist, but I wouldn't call it expressionism either. Expressionism is one of those terms that's thrown around a lot, especially uh -huh. about German artists that's hard to pin it's down. It's like exactly. we don't know what else to call them. Yeah, yeah. But I think it does. I think that, that when people say expressionism, and I think it is true of him, is that it often has to do with this very strong feeling of emotion that comes uh -huh. off of it. It's not sterile. It's very... And there's something so... A lot of the Bauhaus stuff is very cold and clinical. There's something very inviting and warm, even as that is a non, very non-traditional approach. Uh -huh. So did that image immediately affect your work? I think it did. Um, you know, I can't, And how? Well, we were drawing architecture. That was one of the classes was just to go out outside of where we were staying, go down to the plaza and, and draw. So I had watercolors and pen, and I started to extend the lines of the architecture I was drawing. Hmm. I still have some of those paintings, and they're just, they're treasures to me. Interesting. Was this near the end of your BFA? I'm, I think I was a junior, hmm. so yeah. But, you know, it didn't show up it didn't really manifest itself in my acrylic paintings when I got back. Hmm. You, you graduate with a dual major of a BFA and in, in teaching and in, in, in making art, right? Mm -hmm. And is that immediately what you go into? Do you start teaching? Yeah, I taught at Cypress High. Graduated in the spring of 06 and got a job. I was teaching in the fall. What age do you teach? Just all grades of high school. All grades of high school. Mm -hmm. So you are the high school teacher. You're the one who, who, who handles everything from the beginners to people who are doing more advanced. Yeah, work. it's that way for for all of. There were four of us at Cyprus. Um, really strong art program, and I've since left. I teach at Granite School District's alternative school now, um, where it is kind of like well, me and Clint Whiting are the teachers. He's another artist that. Yeah, another you know, great artist. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole different, it's a whole different ballgame at the alternative school. But. I do want to ask you a question about because I, I want to talk about your work, but I do want to I, I want to also talk about this art teaching because it seems like not just in Utah but also everywhere, for the longest time the 
person who was the key figure in many people's art careers was their high school teacher. Uh-huh. And it's only been really since the 1980s or 90s, I would argue, people could probably argue otherwise, that people then went on to get a college degree in art. Usually it was the high school teacher uh-huh. that was the mentor for many people. Uh-huh. And I would imagine that no matter how many people go on, it's still that case. But still a lot of people are hugely influenced yeah, by the I, high school teacher. Yeah, I certainly was, yeah. What, what, um, if you're, you're like the, you're like that, uh, Yankee scout, right? <laughs> Who's sent off to, to work and see people in, in where they're in, in their small town where they're working kind of, what's it like when you're working with high school kids? Um, how, how, um, common is talent in what you're saying? And what's the difference between talent and the hard work? <laughs> talent is not very common, at yeah. least where I'm at. Yeah. Um, I, I would say it's different depending on what school you go to. Hmm. Um, it's, there's a lot of hard work that goes into, and yeah, the kids that work the hardest are the ones, you know, art can be learned. I think there is that aspect of you're born with it. And you can foster that, but there's, there's things you can learn. You can learn composition and you can learn color theory and, and you can make a good conceptual, meaningful piece of art without having the talent. But for those, those students that are going to excel and actually go into art, they need the passion as well. And I think passion and talent kind of go hand in hand. Mm. Um, I hope that makes sense. But. It does. I think it does make sense. It does make sense to me. Mm-hmm. It also um, makes me wonder that as a teacher, what's the difference between your approach and how you treat students now, more than ten years into it, than when you began, kind of as a as a greeny greenhorn <laughs> idealist who's teaching kids art. That's an interesting question, and you know, you can talk to teachers that have been teaching for twenty five years, and they're still trying to figure it out. But I would say I was very much into the nuts and bolts of things in the beginning. We're going to learn value and we're going to learn different ways of mark making and things like that. And I've, I'm gradually shifting towards this has meaning. How, how are you going to make it have meaning to you? Because Mm. I've come to realize that kids there's a lot of kids that just are not interested in art and if I can make them see how they can create something meaningful to them then maybe they'll take that away and they'll learn that art has an importance in the sense that art is about humanity Hmm. you know I used to say you've got to learn art because it's problem solving it's gonna it's gonna benefit you in other areas of your life but I've kind of gotten away from that you need to learn art because it's how you feel yeah it's how you experience life I know it's it's probably premature to ask this because you've been at it for a little more than 10 years, but have any of your students gone on to do work in art? Yeah, there's a, a few from Cyprus that have become very successful. Hmm. They were definitely talented. Interesting. <laughs> Who? Can, can you name a couple names? Yeah. There's a family. Austin Bachelor was my student. He has a little brother named Jason, and... They have been doing this thing. Have you heard of Udemy? It's no. like an online, you can take classes. And they've started a class on Udemy. And they've, I mean, I saw it, I, I see advertisements for it when I'm online. And this is their class that they did in Magna. They, they developed on their computer and it's being advertised nationally, you know. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. So you're teaching... And um, your your wife Camille is an architect, so you're both you're both working creatively, and you're both doing things that are creative and practical at the same time, right? Um, and you you what are you creating work from the very very beginning as a teacher with the intention to be in galleries? I was. Kind of by accident, um, my friend Stephen Stradley had a cousin, has a cousin named Sean, who was managing Palmer's Gallery, which was right across from Pioneer Park. And mm-hmm. he came to our BFA show and 
said, hey, do you want to show there, show in the gallery? And of course I said yes. <laughs> and so it's just kind of grown from there. I don't know how I would have gone about it if that hadn't happened. Um, and that gallery has since gone out of business, but, you know, from there it's been a lot of stepping stones and, and going other places. But back to that critique group, part of the benefits of that is that everybody's ears are are listening for opportunities. And if one person wants to curate a show, they come up with an idea or we all come up with an idea and create a show. And we've done that numerous times. I think the galleries around Salt Lake are probably sick of us applying for, <laughs> for shows. But Have you done one recently? Uh, we did... Yeah, last year the Fatherhood show at Alice Gallery was was one that I put together, and some of the people from Critique were part of that. You know, I a few a few years ago, I think it's been two years now since we organized this first Design Art Society thing when we even had this idea, and and um, I had seen a work that you did that had been in the international competition that the church held, um, and. Um, yeah, let's talk about that work. Okay. But before we do, um, I had I told a couple of people that I was taking works down to California for this thing that I didn't know it was going to happen. And they said, well, who, whose work are you taking? And I said, Justin, Wheat- Justin Wheatley was one of them. And they said, oh, he's, n- he's not LDS. Why, why, would you, why would you take his things? And they just didn't associate. It wasn't like they had a story of you, uh, you know... Um, you know, doing, doing something that wasn't LDS. Uh-huh. <laughs> that wasn't it. It was that they didn't think of you overtly as a religious artist. And that can be sensitive for some people, uh-huh. whether or not they're considered, because you, you don't like to be pigeonholed ever as an <laughs> artist, right? I mean, who wants that to be think, thought of exclusively as, you know, I'm, I'm only this or only that. But it does, I, I do think a lot of people struggle with that. And I wondered if that was something you ever wondered about. As you were looking for an audience with your work, did you ever think to yourself, you know what, I don't want to be territorial with this and make this just for an LDS audience. Or, boy, I really wish LDS people would like my work and know that some of these themes are, uh-huh. <laughs> are theirs. Is that something you ever wondered about no, or dealt I, with? The, the religious art, the stuff that's overtly religious and the stuff that's not is pretty it's for me and it's who I am and I you know the fact that it got into that show was I never expected it and it, it, that painting that was in the show is a simple expression of some some feelings that I had and um, it was totally just a way for me to get out what I needed to to get out and put on the panel let's describe the painting so what's it called it's called Prodigal Son. It's called The Prodigal. It was one of the pieces that, that we had talked, uh, that, that you said you wanted to talk about, uh-huh. too, right? So if you had to describe it, we're going to have it up on the, on the site. Uh-huh. How, would you, how would you lay out what is going on in the image? It's a really simple horizontal composition. There's a home on the right side of the painting and just a single little figure on the left. And the figure on the left is in... He's separated from where the home is just by uh, a different value of blue. The sky is very blue, and the figure's in a dark blue section, and the home is in a light blue section, and he's facing towards the home, um, just kind of standing there, and it's it's kind of like the decision is yours. Are you going to make that step forward, or where are you going to stay in the dark? Now, there's a prominent red line mm-hmm. that is between the figure and the house that comes at right angles against the horizon. Um, and that, ha- that has some symbolic meaning. Right. You know, red is, and if you, th- you think about it in this sense, in this story, um, obviously we're going to think about Christ. It's, it's, when you had read, or, or I, I don't know if I read it or if we'd had a conversation and you talked to me about the idea of this figure needing to go through the atonement, go through that red line and make a choice to walk to the house, but it has to pass through that line to uh-huh. get there. Yeah. I was so struck by how powerful, 
even though you say it's simple conceptually, that's that's as heavy lifting as any image I've ever come across as an idea. And and it struck me that when it happened, and 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 uh, this probably says more about me, maybe not, that finally this is the moment. This is a moment. This is a moment we've reached in LDS art where this kind of art can be made. That's, and maybe I was late to the game, right? Maybe it's been made for a long time already. But if if we as Mormons um, are, okay, so, so take, let me take you down Micah's crazy looking, through the looking glass. It's this idea that, that most religious art for the history of the world was made for illiterate people, right? Mm-hmm. So, so uh, a lot of Catholic art, and I guess you could say up until the Protestant Reformation, a lot of art was was heavily made for people who did not have their own Bibles, and it was the the art was there to aid them to remembering stories that they couldn't read or that they heard in homilies. And and when you what you get with Mormons is a hyper literate, some of the most hyper literate Christians, because. It's, you know, we've been taught from children to memorize passages, to, to, to read our scriptures a great deal, which then means that we've got this shared lexicon of symbols that you can potentially take advantage of. Uh-huh. I mean, if I just did a stick figure on fire, people would say a Benedite, right? Uh-huh. But a lot of our art doesn't, doesn't take advantage entirely of that symbolic language, and it's so explicit um, almost like a Greg Olson image, which doesn't, I'm not trying to take away from what he's doing because it does have its place too. It's such some of his work is so beautiful, mm-hmm. right? But it's this idea that, um, that you in that image were able to take advantage of that symbolic shared knowledge. And I immediately, the moment I saw that red line, boom, the whole lexicon of the atonement and choices being made and figures just hit me, right? It hit me so hard. And I didn't know I couldn't think of another moment where that had hit me as hard before with art. And I guess what I'm asking with this question is, is do you feel like we're in a moment where the art, there's a different kind of art being produced? I do. And what is it that, 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 that is making that possible? It's honesty. Yeah? Yeah. It's, it's people really getting at what they're feeling and, um, I think turning inwards, I mean, this all sounds kind of cliche, but it's, it's true that, you know, I think we feel more comfortable expressing ourselves now and our doubts and our, our, those moments where we, our faith is strong and, you know, the celebrations and the, the times when there's struggles and I, and the fact that people embrace it and that we can, I guess, social media would play a big part where we can communicate with each other and, um, you see art in a different way because now you're you're connecting. You're you're not necessarily going through a central distributor for the art, yeah. Who's curating it? Now you're you're getting more and more direct to artists whose art you wouldn't have otherwise seen. I uh-huh. guess. Yeah, it's exciting. It is. It's really exciting. When I took that artwork down to California, I took a lot of different works of art. Eric and I did, and um, that was the piece that resonated the most with with everybody and still the one that we have some of the most conversations about members and non-members and I, it it uh it kind of makes me wonder um how much you choose when you have conversations like that to share your own experience or to not share your own experience and why you make the choice you do yeah um i guess if if someone asks i'll be happy to share my own experience but generally i I like to see them ponder it themselves. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting. This painting was more about, when I was thinking about the prodigal, it was more about other people, you know, as I be- began it. But then it quickly dawned on me, no, this is this is about all of us. Hmm. We're all the prodigal. We all have to decide to return home. Hmm. And, oh, gosh, I'm kind of embarrassed that, that it took me starting that to realize that yeah this is about me too you know what though i've 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 heard in a lot of different fields i was listening to an interview with um emma thompson the writer who said that sometimes she'll look at something that she wrote the night before and and ask herself did i write that is there's just this 
sometimes there's this distance between the creation of it and what your experience later is with it. Um, and I guess that, that maybe brings in for some people this idea of inspiration and how much of it is inspired or not. I, I, and that leads me to the question that I wanted to ask you about of your process, soup to nuts. Uh-huh. When you're creating a work like The Prodigal, how do you come up with the concept in the first place? Does it start yeah. off as The Prodigal? Let's talk about that work in particular. How did it come to be and how did it get from the concept to being finished? Um, I wish I was one of those artists that carried a sketchbook everywhere I went and had tons of ideas and wrote things down and could could walk you from beginning to end. But I, I put the panel or the canvas in front of me and I go at it. And that's how this happened. Like there were... I don't think there were any preliminary sketches, maybe one or two, but it's just like, this is the idea. Let's do it. So you had the idea of a prodigal in the first place as the title in, in the first place. Yeah. Okay. The theme I was about the teachings of Christ, I think was the theme of the show. So yeah. So you were creating it specifically for the show. It wasn't right. just sitting around and you thought, uh -huh. Oh, this happens to be a fit. Uh -huh. Okay. But that point of, of trying to think, what am I going to paint in that point where it comes? I'm like, this is a story I can relate to. This is what I'm going to paint. All happens really quick. And you do it directly on the panel itself. So you don't have maybe like 30 sketches you've done beforehand. Um, with this one, I, I, this was like the study because it was a small piece. It was 12 by 24. Um, and you've done different versions of it since uh -huh. then that were larger. I have. Right? Yeah. So the first one, specifically in this size, and do you... Do you start off by working with, with graphite on the piece or do you go directly into a paint? Isn't it, and it's acrylic that you're using, uh -huh. right? What do you do? I would have drawn I would have drawn the house and the, the figure in the beginning and then start with the paint. Now something I, I've noticed about your work is that your architecture that you choose um, is really um, it's really playful on one hand, and there are mm -hmm. a lot of great choices that are made about um, shape, color, that draw your eye around. These these buildings, um, you often will have several structures in the same place, and you do tricks with perspective and the eye and how the and 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 how things interplay with one another. That this one is probably one of your more simple simple uh, architectural themes. Uh -huh. But do you usually? Um, have a real building in mind. I do. And then take that and, 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 and work with it from a photograph or uh -huh. something. Yeah. If you see a guy driving down the street with a camera, like <laughs> one hand on the wheel, the other taking pictures, yeah. it's probably me. So have you just got a huge folio of yeah. buildings that you, that you have and that you remember like faces almost that you pull out? Yeah. And, and I, one of the interesting things about this work is that there's an underlayer of red throughout uh -huh. most of it. I've noticed for a lot of your works, you work very strongly with that imprimatur, that, that underlayer. Uh -huh. um, and is that something you've always done, by the way? It is, and it was more just to get started. Like, I mean, it's an old master's, it's, it's canvas, an old master's yeah. idea of unifying theme. Uh -huh. But it seems to be something that comes through very strongly in your work. Uh-huh. And... How you you mentioned in the prodigal how the red shows through in that line and it's representational of the atonement. Um, that wasn't always the case. With, like I didn't paint in red because I, I'm thinking of Christ. Um, but the lines, the vertical lines, were always that representation. Hmm. So in that piece, I just made the line a little bit thicker and let the red show through. But. Um, since when I've done religious work and some of that red shows through it, it is kind of keeping that in mind. A nod to that, but well, I when I went to that evening at your house when Eric and I were there, you had another work that you were working on, and you had you had kind of left some of the layers see through, and the critique from the group was that doesn't look finished. You need to, you need to make uh -huh. this more solid to, in order to, and, and it was clear that you'd worked on various levels. You'd sanded back some of them and brought some more forward. And it made me wonder, 
when you're working um, and you're often working in multiple layers and you're working with um, strong lines and color um, and, and color fields, how do you know when you're done with it? <laughs> how do you know when you're done? Cause it, cause it's not, it's not consistent from piece to piece. You make vastly different choices from yeah. piece to piece. It's just a matter of when it feels right. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times someone has said, is that done? when it is done, you know, mm -hmm. and it's to me, yeah, it's done. It's resolved. Um, and you know, I'll go back and rework pieces if later on, if I feel like they could use a little more, but it's just, you got to let the painting talk to you. <laughs> so you recently had a show at David Erickson's gallery, uh -huh. um, just came down. Un unfortunately it's not up at the, at the moment, but can we see some of those works on your site? Yeah. You they're on. Was there a theme to the show? No, no, it was pretty much just what I had been working on the last few months. What are the kinds of things that you're working on now? The Prodigal sh was from three years ago. Yeah. And where have you gone from that? Where are you now? Um, I, <laughs> I was just looking at my website probably two days ago and looking back and thinking, wow, I missed doing some of this stuff because I, I think I've been going off on tangents trying to explore new ideas. So, um, I'm really excited about a project I'm going to be doing with a, an artist named Shoshana Rucker. She's up at um, BYU-Idaho. She's from Philadelphia, but we have a project in the works where we're going to be exploring kind of the places where we've grown up. Hmm. And, um, well, that's all I'm going to say about it. We'll leave a Are any of the works done yet? Nope. So it's kind of like to be continued. <laughs> to be continued. We okay. just talked last week about about doing this. So, um, you've had a lot of changes. You've moved recently. Um, you've uh, you you uh, you've had a new baby in the past couple of years. Um, have you noticed that your work is changing too? I think so, and. I don't know if every artist feels this way, but I'm pretty critical of it. I feel like as I look at it, I, I don't know if it's changing in a good way or not. So that's something that's always on my mind. Oh, that's I, such a subjective idea. Though. <laughs> I mean, who knows what good is or isn't, yeah, right? No, yeah. one, no one can tell you that. It's such a personal thing. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I think about that quite a bit. Um, and I, I hope it's changing in a good way. How does teaching affect your work and how you do it? Does it? Yeah, it has to because teaching is such a big part of my day and my life. So I think that um, I have to be open to learn from the students. You know, when I first started painting houses, which is a huge part of what I do, it was it stemmed from listening. Doing paintings of houses. Paintings. Paintings <laughs> of houses. Yes, not painting houses. Um, it, it came from listening to students talk about home and sometimes there was no home or, or what happens at home and, you know, just overhearing conversations and mm -hmm. thinking, you know, as I drive down the street and I pass these houses, I have no idea what's going on behind the facade. Interesting. It's probably totally different than the experience I had growing up. And um, so to me, the homes that I paint on canvas, um, they're people. And mm -hmm. And they're telling stories. They're, they're eager to tell their stories. Let's say that a year from now, you've, you've been picked up by, uh, I don't know, by, uh, by Saatchi. And, <laughs> uh, and you're booked for the next four or five years for art. You've got so much work that you uh, don't have time to teach anymore. Um, would you ever give up teaching? That's a hard question because, you know, I paint full time in the summer and by the time summer's over, I'm ready to go back to teaching. Hmm. Then by the time it, it, we're getting here close to the end of the school year, I'm, I'm ready to paint full time. But I think there's a good balance for me hmm. and the school I'm at provides a good balance because there's no extracurricular activities. I'm not coaching track like I was when I was at Cyprus. So it's when the school day is over, I can focus on painting. So do you, do you go to school in the morning, come back and then paint for the yeah. rest of the day? Uh -huh. 
How long? I usually get three or four hours in. Yeah. I once read, I think it was T.S. Eliot who said that if you get two hours of solid writing in in a day, that's a full day's work. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, three to four. That's that's interesting. That's Because inter- there is often, I think, the bias in people's minds that they think, oh, you know, you know, I'm only I'm only teaching because it's paying the bills. Uh-huh. But it's clearly for it's clearly something that drives you. It's it's something that you've always been interested in. It's not a it's not so much a fallback, it seems like. I mean, am I characterizing this right? It's something that, you know, it's 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 something you don't feel like you want to choose between yeah. making or teaching. Yeah. Honestly, when I was in junior high, I wanted to be a junior high art teacher. When I was in high school, that's what I wanted to do. Hmm. And so, you know, I'm living the dream. How lucky would it be to be to be a Justin Wheatley teacher? Okay, so this is a question that I've got. If When you have people who come, this is my last question. Um, what do your students want to be who want to be artists? What are they looking at <laughs> who are, when they're in this community? Who is there? Is it Damien Hurst? Is it Coons? Is it, is it uh, Ai Weiwei? Is it who's there? Who is there Greg Olson? Um, I haven't, I guess I haven't told you about some of the students from the school I'm at now who have gone on to make work professionally and that is in the form of tattoos. Oh, interesting. The majority of my students that want to continue creating artwork want to do it on someone's bicep or. I was just uh, reading that Salt Lake is the third most hipster city in the world. A survey over, (laughs) I think... It was a, it's a survey that's done every year. It's been done for, I think, six or seven years. And number one was in England. Number two was Portland. Number three was Salt Lake. Number four was Seattle. Wow. And one of the, and the criteria was record shops, tattoo parlors, and coffee shops. Yeah. Age, all, a, a lot of other things. But tattoos... If, if you're on Instagram, uh-huh. people are very serious about the artistry that goes behind it. I mean, on some level, there is this idea that, oh, it's tattoo something to, to be concerned about. Yeah. But uh, there are people who have serious art aspirations. Would you, do you, are your students in that category? There are a couple that are really good. Yeah. And, you know, if anybody needs a recommendation, <laughs> I can tell you where to go. Well, I... Uh, I just have to say your, your art is something that I continually look at and, 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 uh, and, am and, and just inspired by, and, uh, we'll put a link up to your site and we'll put a link up to your work. And I'm excited to find out more about this, uh, this top secret show. <laughs> and maybe when the, when it, when, when you finally are, uh, are, are ready to show it to the world, we can have you back. All right. That sounds great. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. You can see works we discussed in the podcast at our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, and look at more interviews and discussions we've had with curators, scholars, collectors, and artists at zionartsociety.org and on iTunes at Mormon Visual Culture. Thank you for listening. This is Mike Christensen.